have. Uh, today we're finishing up what has become the 15-part series. I tell you, I, I love the letters in God's Word. I, I tell you, but when you do something for 15 weeks, whew, we're near the end. That's if I can get it all in today. We're doing a lot of verses today. But today we're continuing the thought of a heroic existence, and today we're looking at a hero's battle and sidekicks. Now look at the introduction there on your outline. Heroes are many times defined by those who stand against them and those who stand with them. They are also defined by the battles that they face. And you know, I believe that's not only the case for, for, for superheroes, it's the, it's the case for us as Christians. I mean, think about it. An enemy of Batman, when you see the Joker, you immediately think, that's Batman's enemy. When you think of Robin, what do you think of? You think of Batman's sidekick. When you hear about justice for Gotham, you're thinking about Batman's battle. When you look at the Christian life, we have themes that run very similar. The enemy of the Christian, of course, is Satan. The, the sidekick of the Christian is the church. Those of us who make up the church, we come alongside of one another to support one another, to encourage one another, and many times fight with one another, not in a bad way, so to speak. And then the battle of the Christian. The Christian, really when you look at it, the, 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 the battle that we as Christians face, as Christians face are sin, the flesh, and many times even, even the suffering that we deal with. And that was the case in the first century. So we are known by the company we keep and the battles that we face. And so therefore, I wanna look at, first of all this morning, at the hero's battle. And this morning, we're gonna look at this battle within the context of suffering because this is exactly who Peter is writing to. He's writing to those, let me remind you, who are being persecuted, who are suffering under extreme stress because of what's coming against them. And so this morning as we look at this, think of all this in the context of suffering because that's, what, that's the audience in which he's writing. And so the first battle we see there that we face as Christians is a battle against pride, against pride. Pride and humi uh, excuse me, humility cannot coexist. Matter of fact, let me give you why they can't coexist. First of all, pride is at war with God. Did you know that? When pride is in you and you are operating from the premise of pride, you're literally at, work, at war against God because it works that way. And humility, when we have a humility, have a humbleness as a disposition, it is as peace with God. So with that being said, look at the first thing there on your outline after against pride, the requirements of humility. Now, let me just say this. Humility is not a popular subject in our culture. When was the last time you saw on the New York Times bestselling list a book on humility? You don't find that. It's because the world has a different message. It doesn't see humility as a good trait to have. It speaks of pride. It, it speaks of uh, uh, showcasing yourself, marketing yourself, and, and, and making everything about you. That's, that's what sells books. But can you imagine a book on humility and how to live in humility? You see, while the world doesn't acknowledge it, 
It, uh, humility is the trait that is most celebrated in Scripture. And with that being said, look at chapter five of 1 Peter. Look at verse five. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, there he's talking about uh, to, to those who are older. He's talking about those who may even hold the position of elder. And he says, yes, and all you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. To be clothed with humility. Now, now there's two things that we see here in this verse. First of all, the whole idea of being submissive. To be submissive, you've got to have humility. I don't know anyone who, who is filled with pride who is submissive. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's counterproductive. If you're trying to live in pride, you won't be submissive. If you're living in humility, it's easy to make that connection with submissive, to, to be submissive. So Paul tells us, if we go look at Paul, Paul tells us that Jesus modeled submission and humility. Philippians chapter two, listen to what it says. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, think about this, made himself of no reputation. You know what that literally means? He emptied himself. And really, that's really what a perfect picture of humility is. It's the person who empties himself of self, <laughs> and identifies with Christ. And, and so he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of all men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Now think about that. Jesus modeled what we are to, how we are to live. And he did it by his whole, the whole idea of facing the cross. So Peter in verse five not only commands us to be submissive, but to also be clothed in humility. Now, many times we are known by what clothes us. Now, think of this. If I were to say a black rubber suit, who do you think of? Maybe this is the wrong congregation to ask this question. Batman, right? I mean, we're talking about Batman at that point, okay? At least the modern day Batman, all right? How about this? I'll give you another chance. Tights with a big S on his chest. <laughs> I mean, you can say whatever you want to. Those are tights that the guy's wearing. <laughs> it's Superman, right? We know them by how they're clothed, a suit and a tie many times portrays a businessman. Scrub speaks of a nurse, an apron, the whole idea of a cook. These things that we put on, these things that we wear identify a lot about who we are. And so here in this text, he says, be clothed. It could be a picture of what Jesus did earlier and Peter remembered this. Now, how many of you, if you were in Peter's situation, and by the way, we see things like that all through this letter that he wrote. How cool would it be to, to look back on those years that he walked with Jesus for three years and then grow in, in his faith for 30 more years and still look back to those fond memories that he had with Jesus? I guarantee you there's one thing that really stood out to him. And how many of you remember when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples? Let me show you something here as, as it relates to the scriptures. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Now, now think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, was his favorite title of himself. He comes to serve man. And one, of the, one great demonstration of this is not only what he did on the cross, but what he did with those disciples. He took on the position. He clothed himself as a servant, as someone who was humble. This was Jesus girding himself in humility or clothing himself in humility. And so Jesus is our answer. If you were to say, okay, give me the picture of how I'm to live out humility, look at Jesus. He's the the example. Next, we see the ruin of pride. The Bible's very clear when it says this. Pride goes before or leads to destruction. Think about that. How many of you have seen that play out either in your life or in someone else's life? where a person was very prideful and, and they continued to, to be prideful and, and there were obvious chances of God or obvious times in which God was trying to bring humility to their life, but they continued to fight through it and fight through it and all of a sudden they, you see their life in ruin. Look at verse five of chapter five again. If you, if you look at it, he says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility And then he says, here's why you want to do that. For God resists the proud. He resists the proud. You see, when we are prideful, as I said earlier, we are at war with God. Another way of saying it is that God is not working on our behalf when we are prideful. That's what that verse is saying. And so if there's pride in your life and you're operating from the premise of pride, listen, God is not working on your behalf at that point. If anything, your life is running contrary to the life that he's called you to. So there's several things I want to point out. This is not on your outline, but I have it back there on the iDesk. It's a red sheet of paper. Some of you may want to take this. It's a great study. John Piper actually put this together. But he says there are 10 things that identifies pride. Here's what he says. Pride is self-satisfaction. Pride is self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Pride considers itself above instruction. Pride is insubordinate. Pride takes credit for what God does alone. Pride aspires to the place of God. We saw that very clear in scripture as it relates to the enemy. Pride opposes the very existence of God. Pride refuses to trust in God. And here's an interesting one. Pride is anxious about the future. Now, Piper put this in the list, and, and beside it, he gives us all this scripture where you see it played out in scripture uh, beside these points, and they're back there on the desk if you want to take it for a further, further study this morning. But, but here's what I want you to understand. Pride will always backfire on us, and it keeps us from God's best. If we're operating in pride, we're working contrary to what God is after in our lives. Next, we see the reward of humility. I want you to look at verse uh, five. He says, look at what he says. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, anytime there's that whole idea of grace, that means, here's what that means. It means that possibly there could be failure, but, but then there's that whole idea of grace that covers the failure. Whose failure are we probably talking about? Our own failure. 
And so all of a sudden, it's almost like this is written in such a way where God resists the proud. It's basically the whole idea that he's gonna come against those who are proud, but those who walk in humility, grace can be present and working in their life with them walking in humility. And then it goes on in verse six, it says, therefore, based on this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So there's several things that we see here about humility. He says to be submissive. He says be clothed with uh, humility. He says humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And by the way, all three of these are commands. Commands. I think so many times we take God's word and we look at it, well, that's cute. I think I will try to put that into my life. I I like the way that looks. I think that would work very well within me. No, that's not how you handle God's word. These are commands. Commands in scripture, as I've told you so many times, commands in scripture always provide for us and protect us. That means if we, if we lay hold of the commands of God, there is provision by laying hold of those things. There is protection that comes by laying hold of those things and being obedient to the commands of God. So here's the whole idea. Humility is essential in a Christian's life. Why? It allows us to serve God. It allows us to worship God. And and, and by the way, all this has to happen. We have to get ourselves out of the way for this to happen. You do realize that, right? If you came here this morning and you were full of yourself, you didn't worship God. I'm serious. If you came here this morning full of yourself and prideful and and maybe you're gonna go teach kids in the next hour or you, you have a ministry here in the next hour, maybe you're even teaching. Listen, that's not about you serving God. That's more about you. Bible says Jesus emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. And so just a whole idea. Humility is essential. It allows us to serve God, to worship God. It allows us to receive the blessings of God. It allows us to receive the favor of God in our, in our lives. And in the end, listen, humility will deliver us from suffering and persecution. Did you know that? It says it right here. Look at verse six. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humility always leads, listen, humility always leads to a better place and a better perspective. It always does. Next, the hero's battle is not only against pride, but it's also against fear. It's always, now, according to scripture, and, and we already know this, according to scripture, fear is never from God. So where does it come from? Well, we know that it comes from the enemy, but it also comes from another place. And you might be surprised where it comes from. Look at verse seven. He says, casting all your care upon him. Now now look at how these verses are written. He basically says, humble yourselves. And then he says, casting all your cares. The word cares there means all your anxieties, all your fears. Cast those things where? On him, lay those things on him. Let me just tell you this, the reason a lot of us don't do that, now you would would think that if you could get rid of fear and anxiety, wouldn't you think that would be something that you would welcome in your life? But it is amazing how much we fight against that. It's amazing how we don't, we don't quite trust him enough or, or we get to that point where we're just not too sure that we want to give over that type of control in our lives. But that's what it is a picture of. It literally means put that on him. But why do we hold on to it? 
Why is it that we want it? Why is it that, I mean, it brings fear into our lives. It brings anxiety, but yet we are our own worst enemy. How many of you have lived long enough to figure that out? Scripture says what? Cast it on him. Place it on him. Listen, fear and anxiety. This is a great quote. Fear and anxiety originate from the void of humility. Think about that. Fear and anxiety originate from the void of humility. Or another way of saying it, fear and anxiety come from the presence and practices of pride. Have you ever made that connection? It's true. Look at it closely and you'll see it. One way to be humble is to cast your anxieties on God. That, that, that is a picture of of humbleness, of humility. It literally means to yield control and trust him. Place it on him. That's the picture that we see here. But it it goes a little deeper. It's not just a battle about fear. Thirdly, it's a battle about doubt. Have you ever dealt with doubt in your life? I've told you this many times. But I believe this. If, If God were to go to the enemy and say, hey, you're being way too destructive around uh, people and complicating their lives. I'm going. Listen, I'm going. I'm going to cut down what you're capable of doing. I want you to choose two weapons that you you use, and I guarantee you this. I know this from Scripture. The enemy would say, "Okay, let me have fear, and let me have doubt. I don't need the rest." He could still do the same amount of damage. You see, we're fighting against doubt many times. It's amazing how when suffering is introduced into our lives, how quickly we begin to doubt. We begin to doubt God and his word even when we read this. Look at verse seven. He says, casting all your anxiety, your stress, your fears upon him. And then it says this, for he cares for you. How many of you you take great comfort in that? No matter what I'm dealing with, he cares. He cares. Now, who's Paul? Who is Peter writing to? He's writing to people who are under extreme persecution. Put it this way: No one, I guarantee, you, in this room has faced what these people are facing right now. And, and and he's writing this, and he says right there, for he cares for you. Listen, there were some people who read this letter, and by the way, it was given to the churches. It, it was passed around. There were those who were being persecuted who were suffering greatly, and I'm sure that when some of them read that, for he cares for you, I'm sure some of them smirked and said, oh, yeah. Why did he allow this to happen? And why is he allowing this to happen? And if he really cares, why did this happen to my child? And why am I going through this? These are questions I guarantee every one of us have asked in our lifetime. You see, here's what happens. We begin to doubt his word. We begin to doubt God, even when we read things like this. But here's what we need to understand. The opposite of doubt is trust and faith. Casting your fears and doubts on God means that you are trusting his promise, listen, that he cares for you and has the power and the wisdom to put that care to work in your life no matter what you're facing. No matter what you're facing. One thing God showed me this week is that the greater our pride or the greater my pride, the greater the potential and capacity for anxiety, fear, and doubt in my life. So if you're somewhere, and let's just say this, on a scale of one to 10 where pride could be in your life, 
By the way, let me just say this. This is kind of a flawed premise. You either have pride or you don't. You know that, right? You either have pride or humility or whatever. But let's just say, for, for conversation's sake, for this purpose, let's just say that the pride level in your life right now is at 10. Let me tell you what the capacity of fear, anxiety, and doubt will become in your life as a result of it, of it being 10. The capacity of that coming into your life is also 10. Because you are saying, no, I've got control. I wanna, I'm not willing to give it to him. I'm not willing to cast all these things upon him. I'm not so sure I can trust him with this. Even though the writer of this letter says, he cares for you. He desires for you to put those things on him. So there it is. There's our capacity. This means that pride, anxiety, fear, and doubt run together. They operate on the same plane. The greater the pride, the greater the capacity for fear and doubt. Now, the question becomes this. Where does pride, fear, and doubt ultimately come from? Peter tells us in the next verses, which leads us to our next battle, and that battle is against the enemy. The enemy. Did you know that he's the one that sows seeds of doubt and fear in your life? He's pretty good at it, isn't he? How many of you have lived long enough to know that? He's pretty good at it. And so we're against the enemy. The Bible says in John 10, 10, Jesus said this. He's very specific. He said, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. So here's what you need to understand. If I profess that I'm a child of God, listen, I can tell you what God's, what God's goal for you. God's goal for you is for you to live a blessed life, Okay? Okay, now you can determine what all that means later. It doesn't mean free of suffering, by the way. But, but he desires you to have a blessed life, he, a full life. That's what the next part of this verse says. Can I tell you what the enemy's goal for you is? To destroy you. To devour you is what we're gonna read here in just a moment. Pretty strong language. So, so we're against the enemy. So there's several things we need to understand. Look on your outline. You're against the enemy, so be self-controlled. Look at, look at verse eight. He says, be sober. Now, when we read be sober, we, we think don't be drunk. What's the opposite of being drunk? Be sober. But it's a little more than that. It literally means to be self-controlled. This implies not being swept away by emotions. It speaks of sanity and discipline. He's saying, don't panic. Don't lose your head. Don't be obsessed with what may happen to you in the future. He's writing this letter to those who are being persecuted who could lose their life at any moment. He's saying these things. He says, keep the right perspective. Keep the faith. Live in truth. So be self-controlled. Second of all, he says, be watchful. Be watchful. Look at verse eight again. He says, be sober be vigilant. Now, being vigilant means being what? It literally means to be alert. Now, this is not the first time he said this. Look at chapter one, verse 13. Look at what Peter writes here. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here it is again, chapter four, verse, uh, verse seven. It says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, there was a time when Peter did not realize how dangerous Satan really was. 
Did you know that when he walked, when Jesus walked on the face of the earth, he had those 12 men around him. Namely, he had those three, Peter, James, and John. They were that close to him, but they still, how many of you, when reading the, the gospel, still find it amazing that many times they still didn't get it? And Peter was one of those that didn't get it all the time. It seems from this letter, he's gotten it now. But back then, he didn't quite get it all the time. He didn't realize how, how, how strong the enemy was, how persuasive the enemy was, how much destruction he was capable of doing in his life. Matter of fact, Jesus told him this in Luke chapter 22. He says, Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. That means this. Peter, the enemy wants to destroy you. The enemy is coming for you. Peter probably said, really? He was oblivious. It seems that he was oblivious to all this. We don't need to be oblivious to all this. Listen, it was obvious that Peter underestimated the enemy when Jesus walked the face of the earth. Now he is telling us. Now, this is written 30 years later. Now he is saying, be careful, be alert. You are being pursued. How many of you find that comforting this morning? Some of you are like, oh my goodness. I'm not saying we need to live in fear. The Bible, that's, that's not of God. That's, that's, not, that's not what he tells us to do. We're to live in victory. You know that, right? But, 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 we, but we do need to be aware. And that's why he's telling us. Don't be oblivious concerning the works of the enemy in your life. So why be self-controlled? Why be watchful? Because of the enemy. There are three words in verse eight that describe Satan. And the first word is adversary. And it literally means, that word adversary literally means opponent. Opponent. Did you know you have an enemy, you have an opponent that's working behind the scenes in your life or attempting to work behind the scenes in your life? It's true. Football, it's very interesting. Interesting. Some of you have already seen football over the weekend. Some of you will see it this afternoon. But it is amazing. I, I watched a special on Tom Landry yesterday. And uh, it, it, I, I hated that he was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. <sighs> but, 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 but I will say that he, he seemed to be a good Christian man. So I was very curious as to how he conducted himself. You remember, he, he was on uh, many Billy Graham episodes that came on TV years ago. And, and so it was very interesting. But the thing that I kept seeing is how much preparation did a football team goes through to get ready for the big game? to get ready for their opponent. Did you know one of the biggest things that they do uh, as a team is to watch game film of the opponent? That's one of the big things that they do. I've heard they'll spend as much as a whole day looking at each individual player on that other team. and get, You know what they're looking for? Weaknesses that can be exposed. And that's exactly what they're doing. Did you know that the terminology being used right here in verse 8 and part of what we're reading here tells us that the enemy is consciously looking at us so there can be weakness that can be exposed? But here's one thing about the enemy. He cares a step further. He not only wants to know what your weaknesses are, he wants to expose those things, but here's something else. He'll even go after your strengths. How many of you ever noticed that in your life? The things that you, he'll come after. He did, he's not picky. He, he'll come after it all. 
The goal, here's what you need to understand. The goal is to defeat you by destroying you and your testimony. Another word used here in verse eight is that, this, that describes Satan is devil. It literally means accuser. It's the same picture that we have of a prosecuting attorney. It literally, the, the accuser is not, we're just not found in a title, prosecuting attorney. It literally means more than that. It means those who bring charges. The Bible calls Satan, do you know what the Bible calls him in one, several places in Scripture? The accuser of the brethren. The accuser of those who have a faith in God. That means he's constantly, and here's what he's doing. He's looking for weaknesses. He's looking at ways he can come after you that he can constantly bring these things up against you. Now, in this context, it carries the implication that he's looking intently at your life, looking for evidence to accuse you. His attempt at accusing you is to discourage you by bringing shame and guilt into your life. Next, a third word used here in verse eight that describes Satan is lion. A lion will not be satisfied until it devours and destroys its prey. Did you know that? Well, I want you to notice the description of this lion. It's not just a lion, it's a roaring lion. Look at what it says. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour, destroy. He's looking. Listen, in the first century, he's writing to people. Would they be familiar by what, with what a lion does in the first century? Did you know that many of them were being executed by that means? Thrown into a, some type of coliseum as Christians, releasing the lions in which they would see their bad bodies savagely mauled? You see, when he writes this, he's not talking about going to the zoo there in Rome and seeing the lions sitting up on a rock. No, the picture that automatically entered their head is what was going on in those coliseums. What was happening to, to them? They could identify with that. When we read it, we say, oh, isn't that cute? He's looking at, say, I can see it. I can see him being a lion. He's, he's sneaking up, up on his prey. He's always trying to get us to be fearful. No, th this was a legitimate threat to their lives. Now, a lion roars for several reasons. To strike fear in its prey, to cause confusion and panic in its prey, and to misdirect it's prey. For those who received this letter in the first century, the enemy was attempting to do all three with persecution and suffering. And he's looking to do the same thing in your life with what you're going through. So here's what he's trying to do. He uses suffering to strike fear in us, to cause confusion and doubt in our faith, and misdirect us in our faith. How many of you have been through every bit of that? We have. I guarantee you every one of us has had something in our life to hit us in such a way that it's caused every bit of that. Isn't it amazing how accurate God's word is? It's amazing how accurate it is. He's doing the same things in many, many of our lives. The hardest thing about suffering is that it can be at times, it can at times overwhelm our faith with fear and doubt. It causes us to doubt, verse seven. Look at it again. Casting all your anxiety, your stresses, your fears upon him, for he cares for you. Now that is why Peter will next give us instructions on how to overcome the enemy's attacks. 
And so look on your outline. He says, so be resistant. Be resistant. Verse nine. It says two words. Talking about the line, the adversary, the, the accuser. Two words. Resist him. Resist him. Now, resisting Satan does not mean attacking him. There's nowhere in scripture where it tells us to attack him. Did you know that? I, I, sometimes I'll occasionally hear uh, preaching and, and, and it sounds good. And man, you can get stirred up with it, but I'll tell you what I'd do to Satan. I'd slap him around and I'd, I'm sitting there thinking, do you know what you're talking about? Do you, do you not understand what you're inviting into? I mean, I've, I've heard that before. I was, I was raised in some independent circles. I know where some of that stuff comes from. But, 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 but we're never called to do that. Even Paul was reluctant to take on Satan. In Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, you can read that. Uh, Paul was there and he's dealing with some demons and, and, and he feels like he's dealing with the very presence of Satan and he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't take him on, but who does he call on to take him on? The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. Here, here's something else that's very interesting. Resisting Satan does not suggest that we mock him or belittle him. Listen, he is a legitimate threat in our lives. He, he is not to be taken lightly. The archangel Michael in Jude chapter nine, in Jude chapter nine, I don't know if you even heard this story, but did you know there was a battle over Moses' body? Jude chapter nine tells us about this. And Satan wanted his body. The archangel Michael goes and confronts Satan about this and he doesn't say, yeah, you do it, you turn him over because I said so. He didn't say it that way. Even the archangel said this, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. You don't take him on. You're nothing compared to him. But greater is he that is what? In us than he that is in the world. And by the way, the, the, the world is his domain. So we gotta realize that. Resisting simply refers to our refusal to submit to him and standing firm against his onslaughts by divine enablement. And I wish I could tell you that I've done this perfectly every time. I haven't. I've failed miserably. I've fallen at times miserably. But here's what we need to understand. The Bible says in James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and what does the next part say? He will flee. So is it in us? No, submit to God first. Resist him. Another, uh, another, uh, as the enemy comes after us, we not only need to be resistant, but we need to be focused. We resist the enemy by staying focused and standing firm on and in our faith. Look at verse nine again. It says this, resist him steadfast in the faith. Now, when... Now think of this. There are three things I want to point out here concerning suffering. Look on your island. We are not alone in our suffering. The very thing that you're going through right now, another believer in Christ has already been through it. Did you know that? But here's what the enemy wants to do. And this is what lions do to its prey. The lion roars and chases in pursuit to separate the weak from the herd. Once he gets the weak away from the herd, then he pounces on the prey. And what happens is, is that uh, from what I understand about 
animal planet or whatever you want to call it, is the fact that once the prey has been separated from the herd, it's almost like the courage of the prey simply dissolves. And all of a sudden, you've got the attack, the onslaught. Here's what we need to understand. We've all been through everything if you're going through something right now, the enemy tries to convince you no one's ever dealt with anything like you've dealt with. Whether you're talking about your marriage, whether you're talking about the temptations you're dealing with, whether you're talking about your, your health, whatever it may be, we've all been there. So somebody's been there. Someone's there to support you. And that's what we need to realize about the church. So look at verse nine. Resist him steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You're not alone. Stand together. Number two, we are called to suffering. Look at verse 10. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. It means the call is, is that whole idea of, of not only calling you out, but also realizing that some have been called to suffer. Now, this is something I said several weeks ago. Suffering, it's not because God takes pleasure in our suffering. Please understand this. God takes no pleasure in the suffering that we encounter. But he sees the potential in our suffering. That is a big difference. And that's what God's trying to do. So look on your own. Be focused. We will be perfected and delivered through and from suffering. Did you know that day's coming? No matter what you're dealing with, one day is coming. It's going to end. It's going to end. Look, here's the promise. Look at verse 10 again. Midway through the verse. After you've suffered a while, Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He's basically saying suffering has the potential to do great things. All four words in verse 10 imply strength and immovability of your faith. How many of you ever gone through something that rocked your world, turned your world upside down? You didn't know up from down. You didn't know if you could even survive it. You went through discouragement, depression. You come out on the other side and somehow victory came in it. That's what he's talking about. But, but here's something interesting. When, when you look at this, I want you to look at verse 11. It says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's almost like Peter, when he's writing this or telling someone to write this, he's like, you know, he just gets caught up in what he's saying. One day it's gonna end. We've all been there. Oh my goodness, God, there's so much potential in what you're dealing with. But here's one thing you need to understand. God is still in control. Those that he's writing to, I guarantee you, in the back of their mind, they thought Nero was in, in control. He was the one persecuting the church. He was the one that everyone was looking to his direction to bring execution to the Christian. And, and Peter is reminding him, no, he, he is nothing. There's a dominion that's coming. There's a power that's coming that is eternal that will take us from this. You see, God will bring us safely through the jungle of this world and keep us from being devoured by the devil and he will do it by his power and through our faith, which is strengthened by what we deal with and what we go through. Next, Peter moves from the battles to the, to the sidekick, the hero sidekicks. I'm just gonna quickly mention them. Savanius is one. He's actually Silas. Some of your translations say Silas. He's called the faithful. He's mentioned here. It's interesting, Silas, he was with Paul in his second missionary journey. Same, seems to be the same guy. He was in prison with Paul. He was with Paul when a riot broke out in Thessalonica. We understand they just kind of made it, had to run for it. And then he, here's another sidekick, the church in Rome. 
Uh, now, let me just say this. Uh, if you read the verse, look here, look at verse uh, 13. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Now, when he says elect together greets you, he's talking about a church. That's what he's talking about. And some people say, is he really referring to Babylon? Babylon seems so far out there. I mean, Babylon was a part of the history of Israel, but why, why is he saying Babylon? Well, Babylon in Scripture was not only a literal place, it was a symbolic place. It was a place in which the world system, the seedbed of the world system and its philosophies against God is the seed place. It's, it's, it's where it all operates out of. If you don't believe me, read Revelations chapter 17 and 18 and you don't have a literal Babylon there, you have a, a, a symbolic Babylon. I personally believe that he's actually referring to the church that's in Rome. Now, if he's writing this letter and it begins to be scattered like he wants to, does he want the Roman officials to know that there's a church that is operational that's willing to stand against execution right there under their noses? A lot of people believe that he's writing in, writing in code and that they would know that Rome at that time in his history was a seedbed of the world's philosophies. And so by code, they would have known that. So we see the church at Rome. Next, Mark the associate. Of course, this is a reference to John Mark, the cousin of Barab uh, excuse me, Barnabas. Uh, he went with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. Uh, many people believe he actually wrote the gospel of Mark, which was actually Peter's gospel. Here's something interesting. The early church father says that he was the first evangelist to Egypt and he actually started a church in Alexandria, Egypt. Find that very interesting. You see, here's what's really interesting about it all can bring comfort to our hearts. The mention of Mark by Peter, especially in light of Peter's teaching about resisting Satan and standing firm in the faith is very interesting. Peter was attacked by Satan and momentarily failed. Do you remember when he failed? Did you know John Mark failed also? You remember he's the one that caused the big rift between two missionaries because he decided he wanted to go home. It was too tough. But right here in this letter, we see both of them restored. Yet both of these men repented, recovered, and became trust, uh, trusted warriors of the faith. Even, listen, this tells us, even if Satan attacks us and we fail and fall for the moment, there's still hope that we can be used. Next, those who are persecuted, he tells them places. I'm just gonna give you the, ver uh, give you the words. Stand in grace. How many of you sometimes need grace to get through this? Remember when Jesus, Paul was saying, remove this from my, my life? I guarantee every one of these Christians he's writing to, please remove this persecution from my life. What was Jesus' response? What did he say? For my grace is sufficient. Things are made perfect in weakness. I mean, there's all kinds of, next he says, stand in love. And, and we have a picture of that. Next he says, stand in peace. Bible says, be anxious for nothing that includes suffering, but in everything that includes suffering by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And then what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the application. Evil, suffering, and persecution in this world will end the day of Jesus' return. Let me, let me give you the scripture if it's not on your outline. I want you to read it for yourself. I don't have time. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. What you had here, what you have here is a timeline in which uh, many people believe the rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, at the end of seven years of tribulation, suffering like the world's never seen before. 
all of a sudden, in verse nine, in chapter 19, guess what happens? The skies break, and Jesus comes back on a white horse, a victorious sign. And the Bible says, and there were the armies of God were with him. Many people say that's a reference to angels. I personally believe it may not only be a reference to angels, I think that is a reference to us who believe in him, who have stood with him. And we're coming back. And guess what? When he gets here, he's going to make it all right. He's going to take care of it all. He will crush the accuser, the adversary, the roaring lion will no longer exist after that. What a, what a glorious thing to see in scripture. So here's my encouragement to you. If you're someone here today and you're going through a very difficult time, some of you I know are going through a difficult time. I've talked with you recently. Just know that this for a season, no matter how it may turn out, that God is still in control. That when doubt and fear comes in, do a little reality check about where you are when it comes to your humility. Are you really casting it upon him? Do you really know that he cares for you? Because he does. We just stand on your feet. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this challenge that we receive from your word. And Father, as we go to this time of invitation, I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray they'll come. If someone here just needs encouragement, uh, maybe a pastor to pray with them, maybe they need to get around this altar, uh, just help them to be faithful to what you're calling them to. Maybe this is your church family you've called them to be a part of. I pray if you're calling them that, that they would be obedient. But Father, we want to turn this time over to you that you would work in the hearts of your people because your word has been lifted up here today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.